volume good? I feel like I'm yelling it is. Sorry, I'm sticking this thing behind me. Uh, Church weekend away. Uh, We have a very articulate and wonderful speaker, direct from California. Um, (laughs) It's actually me. Um, Not not exactly direct from California. It's been a couple of months. But um, uh, yeah, I thought I would um, speak at the weekend away this uh, this year. A topic that's very dear to my heart, which is I'm having a church that both expects lots of newcomers to come along and is prepared to welcome everybody who walks in the door. So um, really a, a conversation about um, the culture of the church and a culture of uh, expecting. Um, I, I said this morning at the eight o'clock, you know, if, if the Queen was going to come over to your house for a meal, and then I remembered that that would be awkward because the Queen is no longer with us. God rest the Queen. If a dignitary came to your house, you would be ready for them. And, uh, and I think that's our attitude as a church. We want to be ready for people um, and always putting our best foot forward. So um, we do hope you'll come to the weekend away. That's only part of the weekend. The rest of it is plenty of time to get to know people more and more, to spend um, significant time uh, developing friendships and uh, learning to love one another and to care for one another and, and sharing prayer points and uh, a wonderful time of uh, friendship and community for our church. Um, I guess that old Bible word, fellowship. Um, It will be very good, so we do hope you'll come. Uh, But on to our sermon right now. Uh, We live in a world of consequences, don't we? We live in a world of consequences. Uh, If you drop an apple and it gets bruised, nobody wants to eat it. If you uh, don't put gas in your car regularly, the empty light comes on, usually when you're running late. If you get dressed in the dark, sometimes you get to work and find out you're wearing two different shoes. Um, It's worse when you're running late and your car gets on empty and so you get out at the gas station and you go to fill it and you realize you choose it two different colors and you're wearing the wrong ones and, uh, and it's too late to go home and change because you're running late. Um, don't know quite how the apple fits in, but probably that's the same day when you get to lunch and you bite into your apple and it's got a big fat bruise in it and you realize somebody at home dropped it and then they put it back shiny side up because they didn't want to eat it, did they? But, you know, you can't throw out a good apple. We live in a world of consequences. Um, and our Bible passage today is also about consequences, not, not trivial consequences like my bad day at work, but more serious consequences, like the, the consequences that came as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience towards God. Consequences that have changed the world and um, continue to have effects uh, even today, thousands and thousands of years later. You see, some consequences are trivial, but some consequences really matter. And to God, our sin matters so much that it carries dire consequences if we don't address it. And so why don't we pray that God would open our eyes to the consequences of sin, but also to His gracious plan to undo the consequences. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, will you open our eyes today to the seriousness of of sin and, and to its consequences for us? Help us not to shy away from this topic, but help us to engage with it and to wrestle with it and to, and to wrestle with ourselves. Help us to understand your great love for us so that our sin could be dealt with in Jesus Christ. Speak to us today through your word and by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first big idea is paradise lost. So for the last five weeks, we've been tracing uh, the first few chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11, um, this story of creation and what it says about who we are as humans and what we're created for. And, and we learned that men and women are to be uh, partners with one another and, and to be rulers over all of creation. And God 
creates men and women for um, the blessings, uh, to, to enjoy partnership and to enjoy the blessings of marriage and fruitfulness in the garden that God put them in. Uh, he created men and women to know Him and to know His goodness and the goodness of all of His provisions to us. And this picture of Genesis 1 and 2, it's a picture of paradise. Genesis 3 is a different story though, isn't it? It's a story of temptation and deception and, and blame shifting and shame as Adam and Eve eat from the tree that God forbade them to eat from. Paradise in a moment becomes paradise lost as uh, the English poet John Milton called it. Before God had spoken a blessing over creation and over everything in Genesis 1 and 2, it's good, it's good, it's good, he said. Now in Genesis 3, God speaks a curse. Have a look um, at 3 verse 13. God says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And he speaks a curse to Adam as well. Cursed is the ground because of you. So the first consequence of Adam and Eve's sin is that God's blessing is replaced by God's curse. And just to weigh the seriousness of this, the only other place in Scripture where God pronounces a curse is in Genesis chapter 4 when uh, Cain kills his brother Abel. And this tells us something about the seriousness of Adam and Eve's sin. Their sin pushes back the goodness of God's creation. Um, it undoes God's good design somehow. It's far more than a minor infringement that doesn't hurt somebody. Their disobedience is likened to Cain's murder of his brother, something that kills relationship and, and has far-reaching effects. And God explains these effects first for the serpent and then for the woman and then for the man, and we, we're going to talk about them one at a time. So first, God pronounces this curse upon the serpent. He says to the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So the serpent, I think he'd tried to invert God's created order where God rules over humans and then humans rule over the livestock and the wild animals. Well, the serpent, he kind of rises up and tries to rule over Adam and Eve. He, he tries to usurp God's authority as the one who tells people what to do. And so the serpent's curse, both um, uh, physically and symbolically, it actually places the serpent below every other creature. And now he's destined to eat dust, which is a, a biblical symbol for humiliation. Um, the serpent is put in his place. But there's a hint that this struggle between the serpent and humans is not finished. Look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Um, do we have any snake lovers in the room? Does anybody love snakes? Is anybody the opposite? Anybody's like just terrified of snakes? Anybody ambivalent? I'm still missing a third of hands. That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I love in Australia, when we lived in America, they would always say, isn't Australia full of snakes and things that will kill you? And, and of course you have to say, yeah, it is, and we wear bare feet all the time. And um, we reach into wood piles and we put our boots on without shaking them out. We do not do any of that, do we? The Americans would reach into their wood pile. I'm like, you've got rattlesnakes, but he's got an alarm system. <laughs> um, Man, I, they, they, they're like, well, you, you would have to think about that if you lived in Australia. But of course you would. You can't just reach into your woodpile and turn over something. You'll die. Um, feels like, 
Let me just have my little rant there. It was so funny that it, you, you got to pull it. You got to yank the chain of the yanks. Um, uh, feels like we're wired to have this guttural reaction to snakes, don't you think? Um, it teeters between morbid fascination and kind of abject terror. Like you kind of, they're so beautiful and yet also, you know, you know they're going to kill you. Um, and perhaps that's one of the effects of the curse. And I think we'll see more of that um, when we get to the flood story in a couple of weeks. Um, this alienation that happens between humans and creatures and animals. Um, feels like the snake in this story is no longer kind of under the rule of humans. I don't know if that's really true or not, but it feels like somehow as he's kind of broken out of the created order, we now sort of have this weird relationship with snakes where we're, we're afraid of them. There's something that strikes fear in us. They're, they're a danger to us. So I think that's one aspect of the curse. Um, it's paradise lost as enmity grows between humanity and the creatures that God put here. Um, but the second big idea is pain. The second aspect of the curse is pain. So both Adam and Eve will now experience pain as a consequence of their sin. And um, by the way, if you look at the two words, um, Eve uh, experiences pain in childbirth. Adam experiences pain in his work. Exactly the same word in Hebrew. Same word in the idea. So for uh, Eve, he says this. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And so God's earlier command to be fruitful and to multiply, it's now replaced by difficulty in childbirth. But I think that's actually representative of a bigger idea. Um, it's not just childbirth. When we keep reading through Genesis, infertility um, becomes a feature in the rest of the, cha- uh, the, rest of the book. There's uh, Abraham and Sarah who are unable to conceive. And then there's Rachel who's unable to conceive with Joseph, and so it goes on. And, and you know, today fertil- infertility is something that many couples deal with, um, and often silently. And with that, and miscarriage and all of the other terrible things that happen. It's not just an issue for married couples, though, of course. This idea of desiring to be a parent. Um, there are many single people who wish to be married, but they wish to become parents, but life doesn't happen always the way that we dreamed it might. And still, other people fall pregnant and they don't want the child. And so Genesis, I think, 3.16 teaches us that the, the pathway to parenthood in a fallen world, it's not always smooth. And that's a consequence of sin as it permeates that aspect of life. Um, Related is sin's destructiveness in relationships. Um, A few weeks ago, we saw that God made men and women as the perfect complement for one another. Um, He made them to enjoy the one flesh relationship of marriage in perfect harmony. And now in Genesis 3, that goodness is disrupted by some kind of struggle between men and women. Have a look at the second part of this curse. Um, in 3.16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Um, commentators give us various interpretations of what, what this means. Some link it to the woman's desire to be in a relationship, even if that relationship might not be good for her. Um, others see it as a grasping uh, for power by women or by the woman, which is met by the male's own assertion of dominance, perhaps violence even. Others note it just as a description of relationships in a fallen world. They're relationships that have struggle and disappointment and difficulty. Whatever it means, the harmony of that relationship from chapter 2, it's gone. 
and that complementarity and the dignity and the partnership, it's undermined. And so just like sin brought enmity between humans and the creatures, now sin brings enmity between man and woman, husband and wife. And so human relationships we know in our world are, as much as they're a source of joy, they're also a source of pain to us. Well, Adam, he also experiences a new painfulness in his role in creation. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. For Adam, he'll be reminded of his sin every time he eats. Rather than eating from the trees and the fruit that God provided for him, now he has to work. And every bite comes through painful toil. God's provision becomes painful work. And it's the consequence of ignoring God's command and listening to Eve instead, just like she listened to the serpent. And just like the first curse put enmity between humanity and the serpent, the curse now puts thorns and thistles between humans and the earth that God gave them to look after. Work is now characterized by toil and frustration in a way that it was never meant to be. So sin brings alienation between humans and the other creatures, alienation between humans and creation, alienation between men and women. But perhaps most, most significantly of all, sin brings alienation between humans and God. And this brings us to the promise of point three. So God's promise to Adam and Eve was that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would certainly die. That was the promise back in chapter 2. And, and so it's really interesting, in God's judgment as we've read it so far, God doesn't execute the death penalty on Adam and Eve in the way that we would expect it or understand it. He actually permits them to live. And in verse 20, Adam gives his wife the name Eve. He gives his wife the name Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. That's what Eve means, living. And so Adam and Eve, uh, they go on to have children. Adam lives to the age of 930 years old. And the world has continued to this very day with people being born and living and, and dying. So in what sense do Adam and Eve experience the death, uh, experience death as a result of their sin? And, and what about us? How do we experience death as a result of our sin? Well, we see the first fruits of death in their banishment from the garden. Look at verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So when God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, he's symbolically expelling them from his presence and from his fellowship. Now, of course, there's nowhere in creation we could go that's actually apart from God's presence um, and there's not any way that we could be somewhere where God didn't know us or know about us he can't sort of disappear us from his presence or his but the difference is he can we can be banished from his fellowship uh, when you have a sharp disagreement with a friend um, it always disrupts the relationship doesn't it and uh, Adam and Eve their relationship with God is significantly disrupted Adam and Eve's relationship with God is disrupted and they're put outside of the garden and they're put outside of fellowship with God. 
Um, the Apostle Paul describes this state as being dead in sin. Oh, we've got two slides the same. Uh, Paul said this in Ephesians. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. When we choose disobedience towards God, we actually choose death. Um, when we're disobedient, we're choosing to live in our sins and, to, and, in fact, to be dead in sins. And I'm not just talking about committing sins, like not doing little things, but um, sin is this attitude that rejects God's authority over us. Um, it's a life attitude that disregards God and, and ignores God and pushes God aside. I think that's the essence of sin. And that attitude is the choice to cut yourself off from God. And you know, we know people who do that, but they willfully reject God in His presence in their life. And so God um, allowed Adam and Eve to do that. He gave them free will and a free choice of how to live in the garden. He gave them free will to choose what they wanted in life, just like He gives us the free will to choose what we want in life. And Adam and Eve, they were banished from the garden as a consequence of their choices, um, as a symbol of their alienation from God. Um, and they serve as an example for us of what not to do. Because when Jesus talks um, about hell, he's not talking about a symbolic kind of banishment from God. Um, this is actually the real and true consequence of sin, is to spend eternity banished from the fellowship and blessing of God. And that's what hell means. So sin has real consequences. And not just in our relationships, but, but in our relationship with God. It's, it's, it's a really important thing to think about. And that's, I think, where Genesis 3 is actually such good news. I know it's felt a bit doom and gloom so far, but it's actually really good news because we, we tend to remember the big parts of this story. Adam and Eve, they, they eat the fruit, um, they're cursed, they're banished. But there are a couple of little details in this story that uh, point forward to something far more hopeful than the promise of death and judgment. And the first is back in verse 15 when God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent. We're going to have a look at it again. God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God wasn't talking here primarily about humanity's relationship with snakes. Um, Instead, this is actually a word of prophecy. It's promising that one day, one of the woman's offspring will win a victory over the serpent. And on the cross, Jesus does defeat Satan, doesn't he? Even as he tastes death himself. As he crushes the head of serpent, uh, he crushes the head of Satan. Satan symbolically strikes him on the heel. Jesus dies. But that's how Jesus tastes the curse of sin on our behalf. It's how he bears the consequences of our sin in his place, uh, in our place. Um, and that's the gospel. It's kind of revealed here very faintly, um, but just enough to hint um, of what's to come. Some commentators call this the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, um, the first little mention or first idea of the gospel in the Bible. Uh, but there is more to come. Look at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Oh, think back to the end of chapter 2. Um, the man and his wife were naked and they knew no shame. And uh, after they eat the fruit though, they realize that they're naked and, and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. But here in verse 21, we see God providing for Adam and Eve in a way that was almost unimaginable in God's kingdom. At the time, at that point in the history of creation, 
nothing had ever died. And God takes the life of an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve, to cover over their shame because of their sin. And so we learn here that death is required to deal with the consequences of sin. And ultimately, it will be Jesus whose death deals with our sin, who clothes us in His righteousness like a garment. Um, Jesus who provides so that we're permitted to live. Isn't that great? Covering over our shame that requires death. And I think that brings us to the ultimate act of grace in Genesis 3, and it's in verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Um, At first glance, this seems like the pronouncement of a death sentence. Uh, By preventing Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life, it guarantees that they will die eventually. But even in this act of judgment, God's grace is seen because he won't allow his creation to live forever in its fallen state. He won't allow us to live forever in our brokenness. He won't allow us to live forever in in frustration and pain and alienation. And those hints of the gospel in Genesis 3, they uh, they point forward to something far more hopeful than than the promise of death and judgment. Instead, they point to the promise of life and restoration, and and a covering over of guilt and shame. It's a total reversal of the consequences of a sin. It's a total undoing of what we could never undo ourselves. Because the Bible finishes with a promise of life in the garden. Paradise is restored at the end of the Bible with the, the tree of life in the middle. It's a new creation where there's no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain because God is faithful to what He made in the beginning and He won't let sin have the last word. And I think that's such an important word for us because, do you know, sometimes it feels like our sins are overwhelming. I don't know if you ever feel that. Sometimes it feels like our sins are overwhelming. And we might even wonder, could God forgive what I've done? Could God forgive me? Well, here in Genesis 3, even in in the moment of pronouncing judgment, God also pronounces grace, if ever so faintly. But for us, you know, God has pronounced His grace loud and clear in the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Um, There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, it says in Romans 8. And so I want to finish by reading a section from the last chapter of the Bible. You can turn to the very last page if you want. We can look at it on the screen. This is Revelation 22, and it describes heaven, the eternal garden, where those who turn to God will live forever. And I want you to listen for two things. What does it say about eternal life? And what does it say about the curse? So listen as I read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever. The end of the story is not a curse for us. 
It's not a curse for those who trust in Jesus. It's, it's a story where we end up reigning forever alongside the throne of God and the throne of His Lamb, Jesus Christ. God is for you. God loves us. Despite our sins, God says, no, no, no. If you trust in me, I will cover over your shame and I'll bring you into a glorious position where you'll sit alongside the King of all of creation for all of eternity. If you ever doubted that God loves you, you only need to see what he did on the cross and this promise that he points forward to. God undoes the curse of sin and he restores our glory. This is not a, this is not a story with a bad ending. This is a story of a God who wants to bring you back to the way that he created us to be. That's the future, but you get to start that journey now if you put your faith in Christ, as you live as part of his kingdom in this world. And we actually get to shine that light, the light of God and, and his son Jesus Christ into a dark world. I hope you uh, have heard that promise today and God's word of restoration for you. This is a promise for all who have their faith in Christ. It's a promise for you even in the face of sin. Will, will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, what an incredible promise that despite our sin, you will cover our shame. We thank you that Christ died to clothe us in his righteousness. We thank you for the promise of being restored to the garden in heaven where we are with you and the tree of life is there so we can live eternally where the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the one who clothed us is our King and where he allows us to reign alongside. Help us to have the faith in him, Father, where we're feeling bad about our sin. Help us to repent and know that you truly forgive all who turn to you. And so we pray all of this, trusting in your great promises alone. In Jesus' name, amen. stand and we'll, we'll sing and praise the name. Let's praise God who has made a way for us. Let's go.